Hello everyone, welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. It is Monday the 13th of November. The big story this week, as it was last week, the last month really, is this um, appalling situation prompted by the massacre conducted by Hamas on October the 7th. Um, all the ramifications are still playing out over in the Middle East and here at home. And that's what I want to talk about is what's going on here at home. Because in many ways, I mean, we've seen how uh, brutal, disgusting, obscene the actual sadistic attack was. We, we know that. We don't need to go over the details. But what I'm absolutely shocked by and continue to be shocked by, as I know many of you are, is what's going on here. The anti-Semitism, the apologists for Hamas, and just this week, we saw someone killed in a protest. And you know what was really shocking about that? The 69-year-old man here in, here in California, Ventura County, Thousand Oaks, killed by a protester on the streets of our state in California. And look how it was covered in the media. This was absolutely stunning. I'm just going to read you some headlines. Jewish man dies dies from head injury following interaction with pro-Palestinian demonstration in California. Interaction with. He was hit over the head. He was killed. But it says, die, this is CNN, dies from head injury. Look at some of these other headlines. Jewish man, 69, dies after clash during dueling protests. Conflicting statements complicate investigation. Man involved in confrontation with. I mean, it's just unbelievable. On and on, New York Times, CNN, as I mentioned, the AP, the LA Times, CBS News, all these news organizations are not calling it what it actually was, which is someone was killed in a protest by pro-Palestinian protester. And what this illustrates is just this wall of anti-Israel bias that is now pervasive in the coverage of this. You see it in these calls, for example, um, for the ceasefire and the, and the equivalents now, and these sort of endless equivalence of that's being made between how Israel is responding to the vicious attack on its country and its people and its very existence and the, and the right of, of the Jewish people to live in the state. They remember that was, that was given to them, not by, they're not colonizers, as we keep hearing. It was given to them by the United Nations, by the international community after the Holocaust. But you see this unbelievable um, equivalence being drawn between what they're doing in response to this brutal sadistic attack <laughs> and what Hamas did in the first place. And you say, well, ceasefire. And, and you see throughout the world now, even people, leaders who were very clearly 100% behind Israel, as we all should be in this situation. There's no moral um, uncertainty here. We should have 100% moral clarity. But that is just disappearing. You see it with Biden and the Biden administration. They got all this credit for standing staunchly with Israel. And that's true. And I said so at the time. And it was great that um, Blinken went there so quickly and showed his support. And it was great that Biden went there and showed his support. That's all good. But look at how that's already being eroded with these briefings about how Biden's concerned about how Israel's conducting the war and second guessing everything. And Macron, President Macron, who was incredibly clearly in support and now saying there needs to be a ceasefire on and on. And you see all over the place, commentators as well. I mean, it hasn't taken long, has it, for the staunch support for Israel to just be, you know, chipped away at. That's what's happening here. 
you know, you can say there are some people who are ignorant and they don't really know the history and so on. I mean, there's no excuse for that now because it's a month now and everyone has had the chance to educate themselves about this situation and so on. And, 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 and what it really means when you say from the river to the sea and all this stuff. Everyone has the opportunity to look at the history and educate themselves. Now, they're not doing that. And you can say, well, they're lazy. They just love the ideology. They don't want to challenge the groupthink and so on. But, you know, the single thing that is in a way the most horrifying is what we're seeing with these people who go around taking down those posters of the people who've been kidnapped. I mean, how horrific is that? That you cannot even acknowledge that human beings, children, women, grandparents, Holocaust survivors have been kidnapped by these monstrous, savage terrorists. And they're still there being held captive. And you're taking down the posters? You can't even agree on that? That we should get the hostages back? And then what about this one? This is a pro-Palestinian student group, this time in, in Quebec, celebrating Kristallnacht. That was the actual Nazis in Germany. I mean, this, this, is, this is an incident that's held up. I mean, how, how many times you had lectures from the left about, you know, the fascists and the Nazis, and they go, they've, they've, they've um, talked about Kristallnacht. And, and they've referred, I've, I've seen reference to Trump's Kristallnacht and so on, idiot commentators on the media. Here you have actual left-wing protesters invoking that, invoking actual Nazis in support of the Palestinian cause. And then they say this is an, an, not anti-Semitism and it's just pro-Palestinian and we, we just, you know, we, we want to support the Palestinian cause. We're not, no, no, this is actual Nazi imagery and propaganda that they're celebrating. And it's coming from the left. And the last point I'd make, and this is where we have to really be serious, take this seriously, because what this tells us is that this hard left ideology that has been slowly infecting every part of our society, starting in the universities, and we've seen it spread into the media and, and into corporate America and so on. The real truth about it, and this, the ripping down of the hostage posters reveals it better than anything else, is that this hard left ideology completely drives out people's humanity. And you can see that in every single issue. The ideology matters more than humanity, matters more than practicality. All that matters is saying the right thing that is in line with the ideology. It is absolutely corrosive of everything that we need to protect here in America. We have to call it out. We have to stand up to it. We have to fight back against it. All right, here's our next story. And I, I want to give you a little bit of hope. Uh, they, these are dark days, that's for sure, as, um, as we've just been uh, reflecting on. But here's a bit of hope. And it may be unexpected that I frame it this way, but two stories caught my eye about the political situation here in California. And then there's one story that may explain what's going on. So the two stories about the political situation are two polls that came out. And so we had one poll which said that Joe Biden, President Biden, is now underwater in terms of his approval rating. Um, he, he is his approval rating is negative in California for the first time in his presidency. And as I noted on, uh, on X, um, if, if you're a Democrat and you've lost California, that is not good. And we know why. 
uh, his approval rating is so low because of everything that's going on. And you, you finally see, and this is where the hope comes into it, people waking up and saying, even here in California, and a lot of people have said, well, California's a lost cause and you're never going to turn things around. I don't believe that. That's the whole point of everything I'm fighting for with Golden Together and all the things I talk about. I firmly believe that we can turn things around in California because there is a majority now here in California for change. And we saw that this week with these two polls. The first one I just mentioned, Joe Biden, now um, underwater with his approval in California. The second, Gavin Newsom, a poll put out by UC Berkeley. Um, they do regular polling. And his approval rating, the lowest it's ever been in California, again, negative, and particularly negative among the groups that you would imagine, and, and I'm sure they would complacently assume are their big supporters, younger people, strong disapproval of Gavin Newsom in this poll. Um, if you just look at the data here, it's actually, it's a disaster for him. He's lost the support. I mean, here's a headline that describing this poll. Governor Gavin Newsom approval ratings have sunk to an all-time low, quote, hated by younger people. Um, and, and you just look at this. It's very, very clear that people are fed up with what's going on. And just to give you one example, you know, among many, I mean, all the time we see evidence that is driving this dissatisfaction, the real world policy outcomes that are driving this. People see it all around them. We see it in California. Here's, here's something that, that was published this week, a survey that really captures how far we've sunk and, and, and how badly we're doing as a state under these hard left policies that have been pushed by the Democrat political monopoly. This was a survey of the Financial Times and Nikkei, the Japanese um, financial company, um, and they do an annual survey of the best cities in America for work, for global business, for international business, the best places to invest in and, and be located in if you're an international company. There is not a single Californian city, not just in the top 10, in the top 20, not one. So these Democrats go on and on about how, you know, where every time I point something out about, you know, how badly things are going in California, you get a response. Well, it can't be that bad because we're the world's fifth biggest economy. And that's true. Um, we're a very big economy. But what's happening is that these advantages are being eroded. All the things, they're just so complacent. They think these Democrats have been in charge because there's no, uh, the, the, the political monopoly without the challenge. There's no accountability. There's no challenge. They think they can just keep going in the same far left direction, increasing taxes, increasing spending without any results. All the problems just get worse. The more money they seem to spend, everything crumbling, the infrastructure crumbling, the schools, the worst in the country. We have the lowest literacy rate. I make this point the whole time. We're the top of every list you want to be bottom of and bottom of every list you want to be top of. We have the highest taxes, also the highest poverty. We have the highest spending per student in schools, in the public schools, but the worst literacy. Um, we have the highest housing costs, the lowest home ownership, on and on. And when it comes to business climate, we have the worst climate for business in America. And now you see that reflected in this new survey, not a single Californian city in the top 20. Just for information, the top city is Houston. Of course, we know that so many people and businesses are moving from California to Texas and other states. It is just absolutely disastrous. How are we going to survive and thrive as a state? We should be leading every list. We should be the best place in America for people to start and run a business to invest in. That's what we should be the top of all these lists. But in fact, we're sliding lower and lower. It's the direct result of these policies. And finally, we are seeing that reflected in some of this opinion polling. The fact that you've got both Biden nationally and, California, and, and Gavin Newsom at the California state level, both now net disapproval, that 
Not particularly good news for them, but it's good news for all of us who want to see change in California. So let's get to California Corner. And I want to start our conversation today by playing you an ad that was launched by Governor Gavin Newsom about a week or so ago, November the 2nd, to launch the campaign for a bond that he's putting on the ballot. It's going to be called Proposition 1 next year. And here's what it's all about, according to Gavin Newsom. We're here because we have a crisis. We have a crisis on the streets. We have a crisis in homes. We have a crisis across this country. Mental health has to be addressed differently, and California has to lead the way. People want to see people off the streets. People want to know when their loved one is in crisis that they're going to get the quality care that they deserve. This is solvable. The question is, are we committed at scale to do something bold and do something big? California, vote yes on Prop 1. Very interesting. Mental health. We all know that there's a crisis. Uh, We understand that. We see it every day, the homelessness. We've talked about it many times. Mental health is a huge part of that. He's talking about addressing it differently. Absolutely right. We need to address it differently because clearly what's been going on has been a total failure. So is he addressing it differently? What is this bond that he's proposing, Proposition 1? Is it going to work to disentangle the threads of this complex issue? Um, Who better to really explain what's going on than our friend Susan Shelley, who wrote an absolutely brilliant article about this, which I highly recommend. We'll, we'll put the links to the article at the end of our conversation. But it is one of those classic examples of being it's so vital to go behind the headline and below the spin to really understand. Because what you just saw and heard from Gavin Newsom is so completely dishonest um, and false in every single way. But we need to really understand the detail to to um to just get how dishonest it really is. So, Susan, let's start with um you know what what it, just describe what what is in this bond, what's the plan here, and then we can get into the background. Okay, well the plan is to rescue Gavin Newsom's quote legacy with a big achievement. And so he has maneuvered to have this proposition put on the March ballot all by itself. He maneuvered Mm -hmm. in the legislature to make sure nothing else was on the ballot to compete with it. He made Mm -hmm. sure they called it Proposition One. And this is his legacy project. So what is it? It is composed of two different bills, one which changes the 2004 Mental Health Services Act, which is also known as the Millionaire's Tax. That was a 1% tax increase on incomes above $1 million in California. And what was the money supposed to be used for? Well, voters were told it would be used for county mental health services that were new and additional, not to replace existing funding. And it was to reduce homelessness and to reduce, quote, involvement in the criminal justice system. So voters were told this is a tax on millionaires to prevent homelessness and crime. That was 2004. 2004. So now here comes this bill, and it is Senate Bill 326, and it revises it. And it takes the money from the counties, and it essentially gives the the state control over how it's spent. And about 30% of it is going to be diverted to homeless housing. So it's going to go to developers to build things. Now, we did this in Los Angeles, and they're they're working out to $700,000 to $800,000 per unit as much as that. And that's not sustainable. So this is a giant plan to divert money away from county mental health services and put Mm -hmm. it into 
something that donated to Governor Gavin Newsom, housing developers. And the other part of Prop 1 is AB 531. And this is the money. This is borrowing $6.38 billion, which with interest will work out to be more than $10 billion, probably more than $12 billion by the time it's all paid off. And what is it going to buy? According to the governor's press release, more than 11,150 new behavioral health beds and housing, and 26,700 outpatient treatment slots. Now, if you do the math on that, $6.38 billion plus interest to build 11,150 housing units or beds is not a very good buy. What are we doing here? It inflated from $4 billion up to $6 billion in about one amendment at the very end of the process. And they moved into it a lot of different changes and amendments, which have enraged many mental health services providers and organizations. And they are opposing this measure. For taxpayers, it's, of course, a disaster because bonds are the most expensive way to do anything. And it's so expensive and complicated that the Secretary of State, you'll love this, the Secretary of State says that it will add 65 pages to the voter information guide, and it costs $123,000 and change per page. So it's $8 million just to print it in the voter just guide. Just to describe it in the voter just, guide. Right, just to describe it. So there's so much here, Susan, and you're so brilliant. And, and I really want to take our audience through it step by step so that you, you don't need the voter guide after you've listened to our conversation now, because every piece of this, I read your article, every piece of this is offensive to any notion of common sense in policymaking and responsibility in terms of the fiscal position of the state. It is just outrageous. Let's go through it step by step. First of all, for those who, um, you, you said something very important, which is the bond is the most expensive way of raising money. Could you just talk through in, in in the context of state government, because we hear that word bond a, a lot, right? And we've talked about a water bond and so on that was passed, I think, in 2014. What is a bond in the context of California state government? A bond is a financial instrument that is borrowed money. So if you buy a bond in the financial markets, what you're buying is somebody else's debt, and they promise to pay you back the principal and interest over a number of years. So when California issues bonds, what it's doing is going into debt. And this is the top of the budget priorities. You have to pay it back. You have to pay pension and welfare type benefits. That's a contract. And you have to pay bonds and bond interest. So when you issue a billion dollars worth of bonds, it looks like free money to the taxpayers. It, it looks like free money to the voters when it's on there. Oh, it's, it's a bond and it's going to pay for all these wonderful things that for some reason we're not using your tax money already to pay for. We're going to borrow money to do this. And you pay for the next 30 years for this spending. Right. So it makes sense to do it for a building that you're going to be using for 60 years or 100 years. It doesn't make sense to do it for services, which you have to mm -hmm. keep paying for. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. They're so it's basically it borrowing services. money because states aren't allowed to go into debt, right, in terms of well, the... Well, they, ha the, the, they have to have a balanced budget. California has have to have a, a balanced, balanced budget. So if there's no money and they want to look like they're not increasing taxes more, they do this. It's a trick right. because it's actually trick. you do have to pay for it in higher taxes. And in fact, you have to add on the interest. Is that is that what's going on here? That's what's going on. So you take out okay. a $6 billion loan and it's going to end up costing 10 to $12 billion down the road. 
So let's break down the two components. First of all, I just had a question. If they've passed this in the legislature, these bills that are the two components, why does it need to be on the ballot? Because it's changing things that were put on the into the Constitution or that, that other laws, it, it's changing things that exist already. Well, bonds always have to be approved by the voters. And in this case, what we're changing is what was Proposition 63 in 2004, the millionaire's tax. And so in order to change I that, see. they need voter approval. So the original, the origin of this was a proposition. That's why it needs to be another proposition. Got it. So let's take the two parts. The first one is taking the existing, there was a tax increase in 2004 to pay for um, uh, county mental health services. Right, exactly. Right. And now they're taking that and centralizing it in Sacramento, and they're going to spend it on shelter, on homelessness shelters, Right. Not on shelters. They're going shelter. They're, yeah, they're so going to call it. Ho- they're going to call it housing. Housing. And um, right. Yeah. And here's the, here's the crucial point. Are they? Because we've talked about this before, and, and anyone who's a regular uh, member of our audience will know, Susan, that that one of the key problems is that we we agree that mental health is a really big part of the homelessness crisis. Um, because even if even if someone doesn't have a mental health issue when they become homeless, the str- you know, being on the street certainly will create one for you. So it's a huge part of the problem. We agree about that. Um, but the it's also connected to drug addiction. And so the key point is that you've got to get people off drugs. Does this do that? These extra, the, the, all this money for people who are on the streets and suffering from mental health problems, does it require, will it be spent on getting them off drugs? This is the real trick of the thing. We have a law in California that requires housing first policies on any kind of publicly funded housing. And what that means is you cannot require anyone to receive sobriety treatment as a condition of getting the housing. You can't require sobriety. You can't require someone to accept services. You can't require anything. So they call this behavioral health, which implies that this is not the same as mental illness of of something like schizophrenia or types of mental illness that are not related to choices. It's behavioral health. And yet there's no coercion allowed to change the behavior. It's a total acceptance. And what this means is you will be paying for behavioral health beds and the people in them can continue to use drugs. And you don't have any choice. You're the one being coerced. You have to pay for this. And so do your kids and so do your grandkids. So yet again, it's spending more money on not solving the problem because there's a state law, the housing for, what was it again? It was SB, what was the name? I want to say SB 539, but it was from, was it 13? Well, it's from 2016 and it was written by Holly Mitchell. Uh, it was written by Holly Mitchell. And this is the law that says it, no state money can be spe- it, uh, that goes to homeless can be, you, you can't require abstinence from drugs. And so you're not solving the problem. You're just recycling the problem because people are still going to be using drugs. So that's, so this, yet more money spent on something that is just going to completely recycle the, the problem instead of solving it. The exactly. second part of it that's so um, outrageous, and again, this is something that you've pointed out and we've gone through it, is the whole, the, the treatment of mental health, which is a big crisis and it's way bigger than the numbers that they're talking about. And what is it? We have 170,000 people on the, homeless, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. The numbers keep going up, by the way, the more money they spend on it. Um, 
and they're talking about 11,000 beds here and 26,000 treatment slots. But again, not in the kind of facilities where you could really handle the scale of the crisis because there's this rule um, that limits the facilities to 16 beds. And this doesn't change that. Can you talk us through that? Yes. One of the big problems is the funding of the care. Now, if it can be put under Medi-Cal and the federal government will reimburse 50% of it with matching funds, then you can get more for your money in California because the federal government is helping to pay for the care. Now, the Medicare Act of 1965 said that it would not reimburse mental health care in an institution if it had more than 16 beds, if it was a large hospital and it had more than 16 beds, no Medi-Cal, Medicaid reimbursement from the federal government. Now, why is that? Because in 1965, which was the era of the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest book and movie, in 1965, it was believed that institutions were very old-fashioned and terrible and that the modern way to treat mental illness was in a community setting with a prescription pad. Now we know that that doesn't work for everybody. And we're seeing on the streets people who should be in an institutional setting receiving appropriate care because they're mentally ill and they can't look after themselves. And it is not humane to say, ah, you're free. You can live on the street under a bridge. That is hideous. What we do is we wait till they hurt someone and we put them in prison. And in prison, they receive mental health treatment under lock and key. Is that a good system? It's terrible. So what Gavin Newsom is doing with this, with this Proposition 1 is he is cementing that in place. We are not going to have large hospitals. We are going to fund these 16-bed maximum community clinics, and we're going to have mental health services in these treatment settings that are 16 beds. It's the most expensive way to do it. It's the least efficient way to do it, and it's just going to cycle people into the criminal justice system and back to the streets. It's horrible. Yes. It's not appropriate. And he can ask for a waiver. This is, this is the key point. Under the Trump administration, they created a waiver from this exclusion for funding these hospitals. The states can ask for a waiver, and California won't do it. And this is the key thing that I wish people would understand, that we can get funding for mental health care in large hospitals, which will give us more beds. It, it's inefficient to have this happening in 16-bed facilities. You need more staff. You can't have the same resources available when you need them. A large hospital is the right setting for some cases. And we are not doing it because of funding, because of the 50% funding. In this measure, by pulling money away from county mental health services, all the money they're routing to housing is giving up the matching funds that we would have had for county mental health services, even in the community setting. You, you're losing that matching fund because you're taking 30% of the money, putting it to housing. There's no matching for that. So it's just not, it's not sensible policy. You can say that again. Let's, let's summarize and conclude this way. Um, on a note of optimism, because you and I have talked about this before. Let's repeat it for those who didn't hear the first time. There is a way to deal with the absolutely correct, correct diagnosis here, which is that the homelessness crisis is an interconnected crisis of people with nowhere to live, um, and people with mental health problems, and people with drug addiction. That's all true. And so there is a way to deal with that, a three-point plan, the Susan Shelley plan, I think of it as, because you were the first one that laid it out so clearly, which is, number one, um, end housing first as a policy. Sounds good, 
but it actually is a disaster. You have to get people off drugs if you want, want to get them back on track. So you have to reverse this ridiculous law that says that you can't require sobriety if you're receiving services from funded by the state. That's point number one. Point number two, you've just explained in terms of the mental health provision. We need far bigger, better, more expansive and efficient mental health provision. And to do that, we, we've got to get rid, we've got to ask for a waiver from the 16 bed rule so we can have modern, effective facilities to deal with this problem. And the third part is to provide shelter quickly in at large scale, not these $700,000, $800,000 apartments, but shelter that can be put up quickly so you can get people off the streets and being treated. And they're not doing that either, because as you say, um, it's all going into these incredibly expensive housing units that don't work anyway because the people in them are still using drugs and still have the mental health problems because of the first two points. So there is a way of doing this, but this bond, this this proposition doesn't do any of that. It doesn't do any of that at all. And so to come back to where we started, um, Gavin Newsom in his ad says, we, we have to address this differently. They're not addressing it differently. This is more of the same with more money it's more of the same, just more expensive. What a total joke. Did I get all that right, Susan? You got that exactly right. He says we want to see people off the streets. Yes, we do. And we want to see people receive appropriate care, not locked up in prison, but in a hospital setting that is caring for people with serious mental illness. That's what we need. Exactly. So so finally, for any, anyone, what's our, what's our little voter guide on Proposition 1 for next March? Yes or no on Prop 1, Susan? No on Prop 1. And February is the date to remember because those ballots mail out statewide in California. Right. Every county will mail you a ballot if you're a registered voter. Whether you want it or not, they will mail you a ballot first week of February. Tell all your friends no on Prop 1. Brilliant. And then finally, where can people read your fantastic article that lays all this out? I am at dailynews.com. Just search for my name. Uh, I'm in the opinion section. You can read me every Wednesday and Sunday. Wonderful. Susan, as always, thank you so much. Uh, absolutely invaluable to have all this broken down. Um, you are the voter guide California needs. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Steve. All right. So here is something I'd like to get off my chest. You know, if you're a regular um, viewer of this show and I've talked about it on Fox and all the rest of it, I've written about it many times. I don't have a smartphone. I haven't had a smartphone for many years now. It's about 11 years since, in fact, since we moved to America. I've written about that. I've talked about it before. Let's not go into it now. There's a very specific thing that I want to get off my chest because I've just had a week of of this particular thing that's been infuriating me. It's increasingly infuriating me um, uh, over the years. And it just, this, this week I had multiple examples of it, which is the fact that so many things in our society and economy now, services and products and interactions with businesses and others require you to have a smartphone. They assume that everyone has a smartphone and the entire bloody process is scan the QR code and we'll text you this and text back and, and do a link and, and the two-factor authentication and this just for your own protection and your own security. We need you to reply to this. No, I can't do any of it because I don't have a smartphone. I can't scan your effing QR code. I can't reply to your text because I don't have any of this stuff. I can't be the only person in America that doesn't have a smartphone 
How outrageous that they assume that everyone has a smartphone. How outrageous that they're pushing everyone to have a smartphone by designing these systems. You basically can't participate fully in the economy if you don't have a smartphone. And people say, oh, you know, if you want to do it, it's, you know, it's your choice. Get a smartphone. But actually, you don't have a choice increasingly. You just can't do the thing that, that you want to do if you don't have a smartphone. In, in co concert tickets. Now, you, you buy tickets for a concert and they say, well, you know, it's going to, your phone is your, is your, is your, your phone is your ticket. And that's how you get in. What if you don't have a phone? How are you supposed to get in? I mean, the whole thing is completely outrageous as far as I'm concerned. You see it in schools as well. I mean, okay, you may say, well, you know, just get over it and get with the modern world. And why should I, by the way? Why should we all be forced to use one particular type of technology? But the most outrageous, I'm sure we can all agree about this, in schools, where they're requiring smartphones for kids to participate in schools. I mean, I was reading about schools that require you, you know, for young kids, right, in lower grades to, to again, it's the bloody QR code, scan a QR code to get the list of classes and whatever it is and, and do their homework on it. I mean, the whole thing is completely outrageous. Thankfully, finally, people are fighting back on that. In Florida, they've passed a law actually banning um, the use of smartphones for kids in the classroom. And, and one school district I noticed in Florida um, has actually banned smartphones from the school entirely, including during breaks. And guess what? Surprise, surprise, everything is better. The kids are talking to each other. They're interacting. There's less bullying, on and on. Everything positive. These smartphones, I tell you, it is a complete disaster for our society. I mean, I've been going on about this for years. I wrote about it in my book, More Human, back in 2015. I said we should ban smartphones for kids. Finally, people, you know, when I first said that, people said I was completely crazy. Now I see many people coming along behind that. But we should also ban the, the, the companies from forcing people to have a smartphone to, to interact with their products. I mean, this week it was a, I, I had it with a bank. I can't remember what else. I mean, on and on. Constantly being told you have to have a smartphone to interact in the modern world is just not acceptable as far as I'm concerned. Tell me what you think and we'll see you back here for the next episode of The Steve Hilton Show. Remember to follow us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, follow the show, tell everyone about it. We'll see you soon for the next episode.